Good morning. Probably you've heard that story in one way or another over time. Uh, it's a great story and a great illustration for you and I that I believe that God does the same thing in our lives, that we are impressed with what he does and the work that he does, but when he calls us to believe beyond where we're at, we have a hard time getting in the wheelbarrow. We like the rocks staying where they are because they're a little safer. This morning and next week, I mentioned last week if you were here, we had a great time, by the way, at the pancake breakfast and worship by request. It's just a great time together. But I mentioned at the end of the service, this week and next Sunday, we're going to take some time to focus in on kind of the compass direction of where God's leading us. And this Sunday specifically, I'll, I want to talk about this concept called faith, believing enough to really follow. Uh, next Sunday, we'll talk more about the, really what God's calling us to, maybe some of the more practical, specific things for what this year looks like. But this morning, I want to take some time to talk about what is extremely important and is foundational for where God is going to lead us in the future. And it's this understanding of our capacity to truly believe to the point where we actually follow, where we actually take action. Because really, when you think about it, faith doesn't mean anything if it's here or here. It only means something if it's actually demonstrated in action. In his book, uh, The Hole in Our Gospel, by Richard Stern, he said, it doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters what you believe enough to do. And that's true when we follow Jesus. It's not enough just to believe information. Believing means that, that it demonstrates, demonstrated in the actions of our life. And that's true as individuals, and that's true as a church family as we move forward. And so this morning, I want to take some time. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 which is an incredible chapter that the writer of Hebrews outlines a number of people in Jewish history who demonstrated incredible faith, not just by what they thought or what they believed, but by what they did. And they're great examples to you and I of what it looks like when our faith actually takes action, when we believe enough to actually follow Jesus in our life, which is what will be required of us this year as a church family and as individuals as we move forward. And before we, we look into the specifics of that, I just want you to, to hear my heart. Uh, this is not the kind of, okay, it's the first of the year. Pastor's going to get up there and he's going to rah-rah. He's going to be a cheerleader just to get us to believe more. And re- I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not, I don't even pretend to be a cheerleader. I'm not good at that. Uh, I'm not trying to inc- encourage emotion or kind of trying to build something. What I am wanting to do this morning is for you and I to embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit who's calling us to move beyond what's easy and comfortable and safe and familiar to really risk to follow him in our lives and also as a church family and what that means to effectively reach our community and reach the world with the gospel and make disciples. It's going to cost us something. The foundation of what we're going to walk into has to be based on this belief in what God is doing, belief enough to actually take action and follow. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 20, in verse 29. He said something extremely important that you and I need to capture He says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about us. When he said that 2,000 years ago, he knew he was talking about a group of people that you and I haven't seen Jesus walking around the planet lately. Maybe a few people who claim to be Jesus have been tried to walk around the planet. But we haven't seen him, but we believe. Why? Because of the influence of the Holy Spirit in our life and the faith to believe in something that we can't tangibly see. That's faith. And we take action on it. Even though we don't have it all defined, we don't have all the answers, we don't have all the information, we still choose to take action on something that we believe by faith. We choose to move forward. And that's important for you and I because we have a tendency to want to live our lives out believing in only what we can see. 
Believing in what we can verify. Believing in what we can touch and smell and taste and experience. Not in something that requires us to believe beyond what we understand. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11, when we talk, start in verses 1 and 2, which are the foundation, which are just an echo of what Jesus just said in John 20. And then move through different points of the passage in, in Hebrews 11 that highlight different people and their experiences and what their faith looked like. So if you have your Bibles, let me just read the first couple of verses. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. They believed in something they couldn't see. And now we're going to get this list and we're going to get this history that shows for you and demonstrates as an example what it looks like when you have enough faith to actually follow, actually take action. It is possible to believe beyond where you're at. It is possible to believe in, a such, in such a fashion that you can take action even though you don't have all the answers. Even though you don't know everything clearly. Even though you don't know the ultimate destination, you can take the first step in following what God has for you in your life and what we are going to experience as a church. So look at verse 7. I'm going to jump to different parts of the passage, but starting in verse 7. Truly believing means believing enough to trust. Verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, who war- uh, warned about things yet not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Now just pause for a minute. I've said this before, but it's so true. This is going to sound strange. There is sometimes a disadvantage from growing up in the church. The disadvantage is sometimes the scriptures become too familiar. How many have ever heard of Noah before? If you grew up in the church, you know Noah. Even if you weren't in the church, you've heard of Noah. And if sometime in your life, if you grew up in the church, you probably walked into a classroom or a children's ministry that had a big ark on the wall, and it had Noah smiling, and all the beautiful animals coming into the ark, and none of them smelled, and they were all clean. Just so you know, that never happened. That's not the way it really unfolded. Just, just for a moment, think about what Noah had to do. He had to put his trust fully in God and what God said was true, that there is going to be a flood coming. Therefore, you do need to build an ark. He trusted God so much that he built a ship in his front yard with no indication of rain. He, wasn't, he didn't have beachfront property. He didn't have a dock that he could put it on so it would look normal. He was building a boat in the middle of dry land. You just don't do that. Because he actually believed God and trusted enough to know that God knows what he's doing. I can trust God. God knows better than I do. He's told me to build this ark, so therefore I'm going to build it. Can you imagine how ridiculous he looked? I mean, just, just think about it. We don't have the, the record of it, but I guarantee he was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was made fun of. I mean, really, the guy in the neighborhood who builds the boat on his front yard, what an idiot. Seriously. But Noah never wavers. He never wavers. Why? Because he trusted himself fully to God, that God knew what he was talking about. And that's what God is calling you and I to do, to entrust ourselves fully to him, to act on what he's saying to do, even though it seems strange or out of what would be normal for us. Now, hear me on this. It's not saying that sometimes people think, well, faith is always strange. No, sometimes we just are strange people. That's not because we have faith. It's just because we're weird and we need to be saved. That's what it is. But it's sometimes God calls you to do things that you just, it doesn't make sense, but I know God's calling me to do this, so I need to do it. It's when you and I entrust ourselves to God. The sad thing about growing older spiritually and physically is that we begin to lose the capacity to trust. You remember when you were a little kid, you could trust more easily? Remember that's why Jesus talked about faith that children have surpasses really that of adults 
But over time, because of life experience, because of different circumstances, we find it easier and easier not to trust. But what God calls us to is that childlike faith that says, I will trust myself even though I don't understand. And it's, I'm going to jump and I'm going to leap. I'm going to jump into your arms and trust that you know what you're doing even though this just seems overwhelming to me. It's like when Courtney was learning to swim and when she eventually was learning to swim in the deep end and we were at some, some family's house and we were in the backyard in the swimming pool and they had a diving board and so she was learning to jump off the diving board. And to get her to feel comfortable jumping into the deep end, I had to get wet. I had to get in the deep end. And so what I did is I went out and I treaded water and Courtney could see that dad's not standing. This is in, I'm in over my head as well. But I told her, I said, listen, if you jump off, I'm going to catch you every single time. But I'm going to teach you that you can trust me so that eventually you'll be able to jump off this diving board and you'll swim to the side on your own. So she gets out to the edge and she jumps and I catch her and she laughs and I push her over to the side and she gets out again and does it again over. I, can't, I lost track. I don't think I could tread water. I was going to drown. But she just kept doing it and she knew every time that she jumped, I was there. She would go under the water and she'd pop back right up and I'd grab her and I'd push her to the side and eventually she got to the place where she knew she could do it on her own. It's amazing, though, if, if I had an adult in the same situation, they didn't know how to swim, they'd think, I don't think you're going to catch me. I think you're going to let me drown. That's why the, the perception and the understanding of a child to be able to trust is something that you and I have to recapture when it comes to God. Noah had that. God said, build an ark, and Noah said, yes. You never see anything like, well, God, are you sure? I think I have a better plan. He never did that. He entrusted himself fully to God because he had faith to believe, to believe enough to actually follow and take action in his life, which is what God calls us to. Second thing, look at verse 8. Truly believing also means believing enough to obey. So going on, now talking about Abraham, it says in verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Catch that. God said to Abraham, go. And he didn't tell him where. He just said, go. And Abraham said, yes. Now, let's just be honest for a second. You and I don't function that way. We don't. See, because when God says go, you know what we usually say? Where? And then the second follow-up question is, how? Which means, this is what we want. God, in order for me to have faith, in order for me to move forward, you need to tell me where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. That's called spiritual GPS, and it doesn't exist. We want it to. See, we love that when we get into our car, and you can plug an address in, you know where the destination is, and then you don't even have to think, because every turn will be told to you where you're supposed to go. You can't get lost, right? Unless you have a bogus GPS. But we rely on that, and so we think somehow God functions the same way. So for us to have faith, we have to know that God's saying, here's where you're going, and here's how you're getting there. Read through the Bible. You will never find that. Never. Because God just gives you a compass. He doesn't give you turn-by-turn directions. And if you and I will grasp that, understand about the way God works, is that part of the process of going is a demonstration of our faith. That we trust God with the ultimate destination, even though we don't know what it's going to look like. Because if you and I wait, if we wait, we will never move. If we wait for God to outline it for us, if we wait for him to to detail all the things that we're going to have to do and the turns we're going to have to take and the ways we're going to have to go about things, you and I will never move. You cannot steer a parked car. You can turn the wheel, but you can't change direction. 
The only way direction change happens is when there's movement and momentum. And the same thing is true with faith. When you and I wait back and we kind of like, we put the ball in God's court. Okay, God, you have to do something. He doesn't play that game. When he says go, our response is yes. And we follow the compass. See, that's the, that's the struggle. We, we, a compass just gives you a direction. It gives you a heading. It doesn't tell you exactly where the destination is. It doesn't even necessarily tell you the terrain you're going to have to go over to get there. You just have to go. That's why when Jesus, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples. In that, the verb is making disciples. It is an expectation and a far-gone conclusion that you and I will be going. That's it. It's not, it's not that the disciples sit back and say, okay, well, where are we going? They never asked where. They just went. And as they went, God used them to make disciples. The same thing is true for us. God says our default should be that what was of Abraham. When God said go, he said yes. So in this year, as individuals, as a church family, when God says do this, when God says go, our default is no, well, you need to explain how that's going to work. You need to tell me all the details. You need to make me feel safe and comfortable before I take a leap of faith. That's not a leap of faith. It's not that you and I shouldn't be cautious or we shouldn't be concerned about things, but if we're going to trust God, it's going to require risk. It's going to require danger. It's going to require courage. It's going to require that you and I are willing to do whatever God calls us to, even though we don't know the ultimate destination where he's leading us. That's what faith is. Faith is not knowing where you're going and then going there. It's trusting that God knows where he's going and we follow his lead, which leads to the second thing, or excuse me, the third thing, and that is this in verse 13, jump ahead. Truly believing means believing enough to be faithful. So as you get to verse 13, you see this kind of summary statement that the writer of Hebrews puts in, and he says this. He says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. That is really a hard verse. Are you kidding me? So these people believed in the promise that God had given them in, about their life, yet they didn't see it come to pass, but they believed in it from a distance, but they died before they could realize it. Isn't that like really encouraging this morning? That's difficult. Wait, wait, wait. You mean it didn't, the end of their life didn't end up with, you know, like the beautiful endings that we see in movies where everything gets resolved and everything's reconciled and everything's perfect and they realize, oh, like the, you know, the, the music kind of builds and everybody cheers and you get goosebumps and you kind of walk out with a feel-good movie. That's, that's not the way it ended. They never fully realized what they had hoped for. How can they still have faith? Because they realized that last part of that verse, it says they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. They realized the ultimate promise that they were going to see wasn't in this life. The one in the next life was far greater. So they could live out a life in this world anticipating and hoping and believing for what God had promised, but also realizing that God is still God even in this lifetime if the promise doesn't come true because I know it will in the next life. It's called delayed gratification and we struggle with it. They had that much faith to believe that God was good. See, we struggle with that, and that's where one of the things we're going to have to come to grips with, if we really have faith that will actually lead us to follow and take action, we have to come to a place in our life where we have to learn to be faithful because God is ultimately faithful in eternity. That means there's going to be times in our life where God's destination is further than our patience. We can't get there on our patience. We're going to have to trust in our faith to believe God knows what he's doing. 
beyond what I can experience. See, because if we don't, then you and I set up this kind of equation with God, that God is only good when he gives me what I want. God is only good when he gives me the outcome that I believe he's promised me. Therefore, I hold God's feet to the fire that somehow he's got to prove himself to me. I have to make God jump through hoops in order for him to be real. See, that's not the way that God works, even though we wish that's the way he did work. See, that's a way of you and I trying to control God. We set this kind of equation up for him. See, it requires you and I to be patient for things that we know that God will ultimately fulfill someday. I told you I had a friend who was engaged for 17 years. He got engaged, and when he got engaged, his, the, the, his fiance, her mom, was ill, and they expected her to die within the year, and then they were going to get married. She hung on for 17 years. And he stayed engaged for 17 years. He was like in his 50s when he got married. It was crazy. But he was committed to her. He was willing to wait. When Israel ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, do you think that that was on their calendar? It wasn't. Their time frame was a lot shorter, but we know because of their disobedience, they cost themselves 40 years. And they didn't know exactly where they were going to end up. It seemed like God was leading them, but it was a lot longer than they anticipated. How about even before that, before they even got into the wilderness? How about over 400 years of slavery? That didn't fit on their calendar either. But God was faithful to his people that through Moses, he ends up bringing salvation and through the exodus for Israel. Because you and I, our time frame and God's time frame rarely match up. God always requires more patience of us, more faithfulness in our life to believe that God is good even though I haven't realized all the things I think God's supposed to give me in my life. Because what's better, getting everything you want in this world and losing everything in the next? Or not getting everything that you desired in this world, but getting everything in the next? See, there's a difference, and God wants us to change our perspective and understand that what, that's what faith looks like. It's a reminder that you and I need, if you were here at our candlelight service, we did a thing called the story of God, which really, it's the beginning of time to the book of Revelation to kind of in 12 minutes, we did the story of God, which is all of human history. You and I need to step back periodically and look at the story of God because this is the good news. When you get to the end, God wins. And if God wins, guess who else wins? We do. We do. And it's far greater than anything you and I can realize in this world is what God will do in eternity. That's why it's so important that each one of us understands that we have to be reconciled back to God through Jesus in order for us to experience eternal life to get all of what we really desire that we won't get out of this life, but we will in the next one. Why? Because we're aliens and we're strangers in the world that we live in. Then there's a fourth thing. If you go ahead and look at verse 17 through verse 19 to continue to talk about Abraham. This is amazing about Abraham. It says in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, who tested, uh, who God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, figuratively speaking. Uh, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Just again, it's a familiar story. Remember Abraham and Sarah. Remember they could not get pregnant. They wanted a child. They needed an heir because for them, that was everything. That defined their future and their, their lineage. 
and what people would know about them would come through their son who they could leave things to. So they, they prayed and they asked God and they sought that. And finally, God gives them a son, Isaac. So it's like cloud nine. God is great. He's amazing. He's given what his promise. And then what does God do? I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Are you kidding me? Wait, wait, wait. That doesn't fit. Wait, that doesn't work. You're, you're, you're not supposed to sacrifice the very thing that helps define who I am. See, if you and I are going to have faith that believes to the point of action and following, it means that you, have to have, you and I have to have faith that's willing to sacrifice the very thing that defines who we are. The very thing that you and I think that we've longed for, that somehow God owes us. If God says, no, I want you to lay that down, I want you to sacrifice that, you and I have to have the faith to believe that God knows what he's doing. That God knows better than we do. That God has a better perspective than we do. Because in order for us to truly follow him as a church and truly follow him as an individual, you and I have to be willing to sacrifice things in our lives in order to gain what he wants for our lives. Sometimes that's a challenge for you and I. Because you and I begin to live our lives defined by a question that really, in its premise, is flawed. When we were in Newburgh, this, the church that, we, that I pastored had about 200 college students that went to George Fox University. So I was constantly, every year, at about March, I would have conversations with college students that always went about the same way. So listen, I'm graduating in May. I'm about $80,000 in debt and student loans. I'm in this field uh, uh, in my career. I can't find a job, and I'm really kind of upside down right now. I don't know what to do. And they would come into my office, and they would ask this question. What's God's will for my life? I can't tell you how many times I've asked that, was asked that question. Like, I had the answer. Ta-da, you know. But as I started to think about that, the last couple of years, I kept thinking about that question, because I know I've asked that question in my life. I realized that that's the wrong question to ask. Because at its core, you and I have to understand, that question is self-centered to the core. What is God's will for my life? What are we really asking? God, what are you going to do to make me happy in my life? That's what we're asking, if we're honest. It's not about him. It's, it's about us. And I started to realize the more and more God got a hold of my heart for the world, that there's a better question. It's not what's God's will for my life. It's what's God's will for the world. See, if you and I start with that question, we eventually will get to what God's will is for our lives. But if we only go with what's God's will for my life, we never get to the world. And it's never about him. It's always about us. And part of the process of believing beyond where we're at and believing that God is bigger than he is and believing that God knows what he's doing is coming to those moments in our life where we're willing to lay down our will for our lives because that's really what it is. Laying down what we think our life is supposed to look like, how we define our happiness. That's what God was asking Abraham to do. I'm asking you to lay Isaac down. And I think, I can't be sure, but I know one of the reasons God asks us to lay things down that we have to sacrifice is because sometimes once we get what we want from God, we forget about him. Because we don't need him anymore. Because he gave us what we wanted, so now we're happy. And somehow, the blessing of God becomes a barrier to God because we don't need him anymore. And for some of us, we need to come to that place where maybe God's saying, it's time to lay this down. It's time to sacrifice this because there's something greater that I have for you. There's something bigger that I want to accomplish in your life. But you have to be willing, willing to lay down what you want to do with your life. This hit me when I got out of high school. This is, this is the tension that I was living in. I wanted to live the life I wanted to live, and I wanted God to bless it. 
Because there's two things I said coming out of high school, two things that I would not do. The first was I would not go to Life Bible College. I told God that. And you think, well, that's kind of weird. Let me tell you why. Going to Life Bible College was a family tradition. My dad was a professor there, and all three of my older sisters went there as well. I, from the age of about eight years old, grew up at the college. I was around it because my dad was there all the time. And I said to myself, I do not want to go to this school. I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm going to make money. That's what it is. I'm going to actually have money, unlike everybody who goes into ministry. Second thing I said is I'll never marry somebody from Life Bible College. Just learn. Don't ever say never to God. Don't do that. But at the same time as I got out of high school, I started going to a church where I was serving in ministry and I was going to junior college. And then then after some circumstances because of ministry, this is what I said to God. I made a deal with him. I said, I'll give you a year. I'll go to Life Bible College for a year, but that's all you're getting. And I'm going to rinse it out of my system, and I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. I had a whole plan. I got into a couple schools I wanted to get into. I was going to go into finance. I was going to make a lot of money because they're going to help people. Really, they were going to help me make money, even though I was pretending to help people. I had this whole plan. And I was convinced in my, in my own mind that this was God's will for my life. And then I started working with inner city kids in Hollywood. And I started having to sacrifice some things and starting to learn to care for other people. And I remember driving down to LAX. I had a little spot that doesn't exist anymore because of some construction. I used to sit and watch planes and pray, just how I would do it. And I was praying one day and I said, God, I really do want to do what you want me to do with my life. I really want to be able to lay down what you want me to do. And I remember he, it wasn't an audible voice, but he spoke to me and he said, what have you always said you wanted to do with your life? And whether for pure motives or wrong motives, I had always said, I want to help people. And he said this back to me. He said, what is the greatest help you can give to anybody? And I said, well, that's obvious. That's you. And he said, you have your answer. Your life is supposed to be about that. And so at that point, I thought, all right, I'm in. I got to go all, the way, all in. I'm at Life Bible College, not for a year, until I finished my degree. So I continued on. And at the time when I got into life, I was dating somebody. I was like, Whew. And she was as far away from Life Bible College as you could get. But that ended within the first couple months. And and I was, I was just as at peace. I wasn't looking because I'm thinking, I'm not marrying anybody from Life Bible College. And then in walks Kim. And the rest is history. I am so grateful to God that he proved me wrong. That in a gracious way, he made me eat my words. Because today, if th- those things weren't true, I would be living out what I would think was God's will for my life. And it would be absolutely unfulfilling and miserable. See, you and I have to be willing to sacrifice. Why? Because believe it or not, God has something better than even you can orchestrate in your life. But you have to believe enough to know. Abraham believed that if he laid down Isaac, that God was good enough that somehow he would what? He would resurrect him or he would do something because God was good. Even if he didn't have Isaac, God would still be good. And some of us in our lives, we need to realize there are things in our life that even if we didn't have those things, God still would be good. In fact, he might even be, prove himself to be better because those have become a barrier to you and I. And then moving on to the fifth thing, look at verse 24 to 26. Now moving to Moses. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Truly believing means believing enough to deny yourself. To be willing to deny the very thing that's in front of you that you think that you deserve. 
Think about Moses' journey. Moses won the lottery. He was born into a Hebrew family. He was born into a slave family. And you know the story is his, out of a desire to save him, his parents put him in a basket that floats down the river and he becomes part of Pharaoh's daughter's household. So he's a part of Pharaoh's household. So he goes from being in a slave family to being the most powerful, wealthy family in the world at that time. Can you imagine? You think, I'd like that. Wouldn't you? I mean, let's just be honest. To have nothing and then to have everything. But it says that Moses chose not to partake or invest himself in the treasures or pleasures of Egypt by faith. He chose to deny himself what everybody else would have thought is the right move for him. What this strikes in us is something that, that I don't know. I know it comes from hell. It's, that's the origin. But I don't know how it comes. It comes in the church. It's in our country. And it's something I think that destroys following Jesus faster than most other things. And it's this sense of entitlement that we have. That somehow I deserve and I'm owed something from God or from other people. And you, can you imagine, just to think Moses, for a, just a moment, if you went down that road to think, you know, well, I was born into a slave family and now I'm free. And now I have all this money and now I have all the pleasures that I want. I deserve this. But he didn't do that. How many times in our life do you and I think that God owes us something? God owes us nothing. That's the beauty of grace and mercy. It's because actually he does owe us something. It's called wrath and judgment. And it's what he poured out on Jesus on the cross so that we could be shielded, so that we could be forgiven. See, if you and I will get beyond this kind of sense of entitlement in our life, then we'll be willing to deny ourselves, realizing, you know what? God doesn't owe me anything. I don't have to have this. I don't deserve this. And when you and I live with that mentality, everything we get becomes an amazing blessing because we were never owed it in the first place. God didn't owe us anything, so therefore anything he does in my life is a huge blessing. But some of us think, oh God, you owe me this. God doesn't owe us anything, but he chooses to give us his grace. See, I I believe that Moses understood this. He understood the reality of what God was doing was bigger than his own selfish pleasures of what he could have had for himself. Are you and I willing to deny ourselves for the benefit of other people? This is a question you and I have to come to grips with at a personal level and as a church. We've gone through great transition in the last year. We are not done with transition because we know part of our transition is leaving this building. And you'll hear more about the specifics of an opportunity that's come our way that that could be amazing. You'll hear about that next week. But I want you to understand our decision to make a transition from the building is not so that we can do it for ourselves, but it's to learn to live with less so that we can invest more in God's kingdom. Now, hear me. I hear, when I say that to people, I do. I feel, oh, that's great, hallelujah. But when the rubber reads the road, when we actually see what the sacrifice and denying ourselves looks like, then it's like, ah, now wait a second here. I mean, we got it. We can't be ridiculous. I mean, you know, come on. That's one of the reasons why, by the way, there's less chairs. We removed over 100 chairs in the sanctuary. We're getting ready to move to a smaller building, so we're getting used to having to sit closer to each other. There's an intention to it. Because where we move will be smaller than we are right now. It will be more cramped. Wherever it ends up being, even if it's a school, it's not going to be like this. 
But the whole process we're walking through is saying, okay, am I willing to give up this? Why? This building has defined us for 20 years. Wherever we move is not going to define us. A building doesn't define a church. Jesus defines a church. The building is secondary. And so when you walk into a facility and it doesn't have all the great bells and whistles and everything's not perfect, who cares? When you and I are gone in 50 years, the building's not going to matter. Somebody's soul is going to matter. And so if you and I come to understand, I'm willing to deny the comfort that maybe I have in having my space in the sanctuary or having a building that gives us everything we want, that has beautiful video screens. And yeah, it's showing its age a bit, but it's, it's a decent building. Are we willing to give up that comfort knowing that it could give us the opportunity to invest in people's lives? You better believe we are. But you and I just can't add on what God wants to do. You and I have to let go in order to embrace. That's denial. That's denying ourselves this so that we can gain this over there. We don't only have to do it as a church, but we have to do it as individuals. We have to come to grips with the selfish nature that we have that wants everything for ourselves and say, I am willing to deny myself my entitlement, my right to whatever I think I'm supposed to have. I'm willing to give it up. I think I've shared this story before, but man, this one counseling appointment I had probably 12 years ago now, I cannot forget it because what was said in that counseling appointment was so true of every human being, including myself, but it was done in such a dramatic way, I can't forget it. So I was sitting with a couple that had been married for a little while, and it's a couple that came to me before they got married and said, we'd like you to marry us. I sat down with them, and after one counseling session said, I'm not going to marry you. I said, not right now. I said, you're not ready to get married. I said, you're, gonna head, you're heading into trouble. You need to listen to me. And they didn't. They found somebody else, and they got married. So then they came back to me, now that their marriage was a mess, and they said, we need help. I said, I really bit my tongue because I almost wanted to say, I told you so, but I didn't. I didn't. So we're sitting in a counseling appointment, and I were kind of walking through their challenges and was talking to the husband and telling him about the importance of learning to do what Jesus said to do, what those scriptures said to do about learning to love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid himself down, laid his life down. So I was targeting him and saying, listen, there's some things you need to do. And finally, he had had enough. He stands up in the middle of the counseling point at the top of his lungs. He screams, what about me? And we all just sat there stunned. And then I said, there's your problem. He didn't like that either. In fact, then he left my office with a few extra words as he went out the door. (laughs) But as I thought about that, that is, whether you and I want to admit it or not, that's what we scream inside. Every day when we wake up, we're saying that. What about me today? What about what I want to do today? We're not saying, ultimately, what about him? What does he want today? What about them? See, because that's the question, especially for the church. You know, the, the, the church is the only organization in the world that doesn't exist for itself. We forget that sometimes. We think that we exist for ourselves. We don't. We exist for God's glory and for the world. Therefore, we don't have the right to say, what about me? You know why? God will take care of me. My concern, our concern, has to be what about him and his glory and what does he want us to do in the world? That's what drives everything. That's what drives a building. That's what has to drive our lives. If you've come to know Jesus, that's the foundation. Which leads to the final thing I want to touch on. Then the worship team will join us again. We'll, 
We'll sing one last song together before we head out. But in verse 28, it's very clear what we need to understand about believing. It means that you and I need to believe enough to live under God's mercy. So in verse 28, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. That reference is back to the Old Testament, back to the Exodus again. So Israel's story, they're stuck for over 400 years in bondage to slavery to Egypt. Then God, through Moses, brings these plagues to get Pharaoh's attention to let God's people go so they can go and worship. And the last plague, the last thing that God did was he was going to strike the firstborn of all of Egypt. But to protect Israel, every family had to slaughter a lamb, and then they had to take the blood, and they had to put it over their doorposts so that when the angel of death came over, their houses were protected. This was an intentional image to show that Jesus would be the lamb that was sacrificed, not only for the covering of the Jewish people, but for the forgiveness of all mankind. By faith, people believed that if they obeyed God, and they slaughtered the lamb, they would be protected. By faith, you and I have to be willing to embrace the reality. And this, if some of you think, oh, this is basic, I get this. That you and I truly live under God's mercy because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. That we truly are forgiven. And we are forgiven not so that just that we don't have to worry about our past. We are forgiven so that we are freed for the future. And the reason I want to end on this note today is because the, the turning of a calendar going from 2013 to 2014, is not some just one day to the next. It can be. You know, December 31st can be the same as January 1st, other than the fact there may be a little bit more football in one day or the other. I don't know. But every year, in fact, the cycle of the calendar is something God has infused into humanity, tracking time and days. And it's on purpose. Because the changing of the year gives you and I an opportunity to look back at the previous year and look forward to the next one. And when you and I think about the fact of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, that by faith we believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to forgive me of my sin and set me free, that changes everything if we believe that by faith. That means when you come to grips with your own sin and you confess your sin, you are forgiven. Some of you need to hear that. Because you've asked for forgiveness, but the enemy keeps bringing you back to points of failure in your life and keeps defining who you are by that, and you can't get beyond it because you don't believe it's true. We just took communion, and some of you just do it out of, this is what we do, but you don't believe that what those symbols represent truly cleanses you. You are right before God if you've confessed your sin. But even more than that, it means that you and I are free to move forward. Does it mean that we're perfect and we'll never sin again? No, that's why God's grace through Jesus' death is sufficient to cover all of our sin. The past, the present, and the future. But what that means is that God desires you and I to be free and moving forward. And that's why the turn of a calendar is an opportunity not to make a resolution. Because you and I will fail every time. That's why gym membership goes up in January and dumps by May. It's true. I'm going to get in shape at least for three weeks and then you're back to what you were before. Because that's our human capacity to try to change. But the difference is, it's not about a resolution, it's about repentance. And repentance only comes through God's grace because it gives us the context, because repentance is a turning from what we used to be toward who God wants us to be. A turning from our sin to Jesus. And for some of us now, we need to do that. 
Because for some of us, we've been defined by our sin and failure for years. And God says, it's time to change. And the same is true for our church. God is not just adjusting new hope. He is recreating it. I am not recreating it. Oh, Pastor John, you came here with an agenda and you're, nope. We are responding to what God's doing. I couldn't have told you the things that were going to happen this last year. I couldn't have orchestrated those things. We simply are responding to the change that God is bringing. He is recreating us as a church. He is giving us a new identity. But that means, if that's true, that for our identity as a church, who we've defined ourselves in the past can be no longer, both on the positive and the negative side. Because some of us, you know, we want to recapture the glory days of sunrise. Remember when we used to do this? Remember when the building was full? Remember when we did this and that? and It was great and everything. And boy, someday that, no, someday is gone. God's doing something new. The world has changed in the last 20 years. But for others, you know what the dialogue is? Oh, man. You know, when that happened and that failure happened and that financial crisis happened and this person did that and I got offended and it's all the past and all the garbage that we've walked through and that, that influences every thought and decision you have about the future of New Hope. It all plays in. God said, it's time to stop. We are moving forward. The beautiful thing about the way God works is that our past shapes our future, but it doesn't define it or limit it. We are shaped by who we are. It's a part of our narrative. It's a part of our story. What's happened to this church in the last 20, 25 years is a part of who we are. But it doesn't limit us or somehow define us and keep us from what God wants to do in us. So don't, don't walk around thinking that Sunrise New Hope has a little asterisk by it. It's the church in Simi that's defined by failure because I know that's part of the dialogue. But it has to change. And how does it change? Because Pastor John says it changed. No, because we live differently. Because we live in the hope of what God is doing now and in the future, not in the devastation of the past. In fact, the beauty of the past is that God has redeemed and is reconciling the brokenness of our past. That's the beauty of our story. We have a story, but it's not to live in the past. It's to move forward and embrace what God's doing. So that's why at the beginning of this year, we're starting with this foundation, to have the faith to leave the past in the past and move forward into the future to believe that God is doing something greater in us. Not that we have to make happen, that we have to have the faith to respond to in action. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ability in our lives to transform us to make us into what you want us to be, to change us and transform us in a way that even though our past has shaped who we are today, it's not something that's going to control us and limit us. We thank you for that. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to make this transition in our lives as a church and as individuals to become who you want us to be. In fact, right where you're at, just your eyes closed, I'm going to read to you from... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes in verses 9 through 11, he describes something that's very important for you and I to capture today. He's very pointed and he's very specific on what he says about our failures, but he also is very encouraging on what he says about our future. He says this in verse 9, he says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, 
or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says this, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I want you to let those words sink in because what God says of you, what God says of us is you once were, but you no longer are. You once were a sinner separated from God, but through Jesus Christ, you are no longer. You once were a thief. You once were a liar. You once were immoral. You once were a cheat. You once were an adulterer. You once were a gossiper. You once were a slanderer. All those things you once were, but God says through Jesus cleansing power, you are no longer. I want you to hear that because as we move forward, God wants your life to be defined by once were, but no longer are. You once were. In 2013, you once were. In 2014, you no longer are. You are the new creation that God is creating you to be through what Jesus has done in your life. So Lord Jesus, I ask that we would be able to move forward. That your forgiveness, Jesus, through the cross would take full root in our hearts, that we would be cleansed from our past and we would believe that. And in moving forward, we would not go back to the patterns of the past. The habitual sins that have followed us from years would be broken free today because, Lord Jesus, what you've done on the cross and the decision that we've made to move forward in faith, to follow the direction that you're leading us because, Lord, we know the destination you have is far greater than anything that we can orchestrate on our own. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.